Welcome to Reinventing Solidarity, a podcast of the journal New Labor Forum and the School of Labor and Urban Studies at the City University of New York. My name is Paula Finn, podcast host and editor of New Labor Forum. Reinventing Solidarity features scholars, activists, and artists on the front lines of movements for social and economic justice. We ask the essential and often provocative questions about race, class, gender, and the role of organized labor and social justice organizations in the work of creating a radically different world, a world with solidarity, equality, and sustainability at its heart. In this episode, New Labor Forum's Books and the arts editor, Samir Santi, interviews Sandy Jacoby, author of Labor in the Age of Finance, Pensions, Politics, and Corporations from Deindustrialization to Dodd-Frank. Jacoby's book and this conversation offer crucial insight into the strategic choices organized labor has made since the 1990s in the face of burgeoning corporate power and labor's own diminished membership roles. With union density in the private sector hovering around 6% and a labor law regime that enables employers to pull out all the stops to resist unionization, many unions have sought other forms of leverage. As Jacoby's book title suggests, those strategies have focused on both legislative reform in the form of Dodd-Frank, for example, and union pension shareholder activism. In both realms, Jacoby argues, organized labor has acted in ways that elevate shareholder influence within corporations. An irony, which Jacoby takes up, with Samir in this engaging interview as they explore and evaluate labor's finance-based tactics. I'm just thrilled to be having this conversation with Sandy about his fascinating new book, Labor in the Age of Finance, Politics or Pensions, Politics and Corporations from Deindustrialization to Dodd-Frank. Sandy Jacoby, Professor Jacoby, is a distinguished research professor at UCLA's Anderson School of Management, and he also holds appointments in the Department of History and the Department of Public Policy at UCLA. In addition to the book we're discussing today, he's the author of a number of important studies on business and labor in the U.S. and globally over the 20th and 21st centuries, including one that made a very big impression on me when I was first beginning to study labor history, Modern Manners, Welfare Capitalism Since the New Deal, which looks at the, the really long history of employer paternalism and anti-unionism in the United States, and I think is an indispensable resource for any organizer or scholar of the labor movement. Professor Jacoby is also the co-editor of the journal Comparative Labor Law and Policy, and he's been a visiting professor at universities all over the world, I think from most continents. And he's also the recipient of many, many awards and accolades, including the prestigious Guggenheim Fellowship, which he received for this book that we're about to discuss. There's a lot more to his distinguished record, but I'll leave it at that for the sake of time. In this book, Labor in the Age of Finance, Sandy poses a question that's been central to all of his work. 
how concretely have changes in the corporate and financial organization of the last few decades affected the landscape on which workers' struggles take place? You know, what are the new challenges and what are the new opportunities this landscape presents? And a big theme here and in all of Sandy's work is that those of us concerned about worker justice need to think hard about business, or to use a different term, about capital. Corporations and the corporate world more broadly, as this book and all of, all of his work have shown, have a history. There's a beginning, there's, a, there's an end, or it could be an end. And, and the evolution of, of you know, the corporate form over the last century or more has taken place for specific reasons. And, and we got to understand those reasons if we're going to organize effectively. So that's the idea. That's the animating principle of so much of his work. And I think it's, it's, a, it's a principle that a lot of us in the labor movement and in social justice world more broadly would do well to think about. So Sandy, I'm, uh, thanks so much for being here. I'm really excited. And to get us going, I guess I, I want to see if you could start by, by situating the argument of the book, the Occupy Wall Street that happened, started, started 10, 10 years ago, a decade out, which is kind of wild to reflect upon. And, you know, a great success of Occupy was to highlight for the world the fact that we're living in what you might call an age of finance. It was, in fact, so successful that it's now hard for a lot of people, and I think especially younger people, to imagine a world in which finance or Wall Street, to use a shorthand, doesn't have overwhelming power. So your book shows that this age of finance has a history, that it, that it hasn't always been this way, the way it is today. So can you walk us through that history a little bit, painting a picture of the economic landscape before the age of finance and and, and explain when and why financialization began? We live in in a unique age of financialization, a word that really caught on in the early 2000s preceding the financial crisis. Before I get to the history, we have to ask what's financialization? And there are a lot of ways of defining it, the size of the financial sector, the important uh, role of debt that many households now are saddled with, the importance of financial criteria and corporate decisions, and of course, the stock market. How big is it relative to the economy? How much do corporations depend on stock markets to finance their investments? And for me, that definition, the importance of stock markets to financialization is what I focus on in the book. And one reason for that focus is that the stock market is the place where there's a very direct relationship between corporations on the one hand and how income and wealth get distributed on the other. So we're not the first to experience financialization, the salience of stock markets. There was an earlier wave of financialization that occurred in the late 19th century on up to the Great Depression in 1933. So for about 40, 50 years, and this was the era of industrialization in the United States and another period when there was a growth of stock markets and their importance in the economy. And in those days, shareholders were founders of companies, their families, today would be the Waltons, wealthy investors, and they had a lot of power over corporations. So shareholders had a big say in what was going on. Like today, unions were relatively weak and inside companies, workers were squeezed, wages were held down, and that benefited investors. And 
it resulted in a very lopsided distribution of income. So in 1929, right before the economic crash, the Great Depression, the top tenth of 1%, that's like you take 1% and you cut it into 10 little pieces. So the very, very top, tippy top, owned 25% of the nation's wealth. It's pretty, pretty extraordinary. That was partly a consequence of the power of owners over corporations. Despite the power of finance, the AFL, which was at that time a fairly conservative group of unions, was pretty much disengaged from financial questions. The one exception being the labor banking movement. A number of unions started banks. Many of those banks failed during the Depression, but a few are still around, the best known being the Amalgamated Bank, which is headquartered in New York. Its history goes back to this first wave of financialization. Okay, the first wave comes to an end basically when the stock market crashes in 1929. And shortly thereafter, Franklin Roosevelt is elected. There's a major political realignment in the country. And we see a contraction of all these measures of financialization. For example, the importance of stock markets relative to the size of the economy falls by half between 1929 and 1960. Stock markets just became a lot less important during this New Deal era. And by the way, when I talk about the New Deal era, I don't only mean the period when Roosevelt was in office, but I mean the period from the time he was elected until the institutions that were created at, at that moment began to transform and decompose, which was in the 1970s. So during that era, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, part of the 70s, contraction of financialization is huge. Shareholders are less important. Companies don't prioritize their interests. We also see the growth of the labor movement. And the labor movement is another constraint on financialization because workers got a bigger slice of corporate income. Shareholders weren't getting as much relatively as big a slice as before. It was a more egalitarian era when it came to income distribution as a result of these changes inside the firm. With shareholders weaker and workers stronger, the people at the tippy top that I was talking about before are getting a lot less income. And so that top one-tenth of one percent sees its share of income cut by half between 1929 and 1960. That's huge. We then come to our own era, which it's hard to date when exactly it began. I'd say the late 70s and in, in the Clinton years. It's a period of ideological change when neoliberalism appeared with the idea that people should stand on their own feet and government was bad. There's a lot of financial de deregulation, which brings back and puts energy into the financial sector. And combined with that, there were people like me, baby boomers, who were beginning to save for their retirements. You put that all together, neoliberalism, deregulation, the boomers putting money into stock markets, and stock markets expanded once again. Not only did they expand, 
they became twice as large in the 1990s as they were in 1929. So yeah, we're living in an era of financialization. In some ways, it's even more financialized than it was earlier in the 20th century. But there are some similar characteristics. Labor is squeezed again. Today, private sector union density, the share of corporate employees who belong to unions, is back down to the same level it was at in 1929. We've seen a dramatic transfer of corporate wealth from labor to capital. So we're back in an era of much like the late 19th century, where there's vast inequality, power of capital in stock markets, and corporations benefiting the wealthy who own their stock. So thanks for that overview, which I think is really helpful for a lot of folks. And one of the arguments of the book is that these pension funds were big actors in the process of what we've called financialization. In addition to the big, you know, the big banks that we, we are, you know, are famous and other companies that we've heard about, pension funds themselves were, were active in this, and this thing that you call the shareholder revolution. So could you talk a little bit about what this was and how pension funds fit into the story that you're telling here about the fall of the New Deal order, the rise of this new age of finance and the shareholder revolution? Well, the curious thing is that the shareholder revolution, which we can date to the 1980s, was propelled in part by these large public pension plans. And out in front of the pack was CalPERS. How did that happen? Well, until the 1980s, most public pension plans had very low caps on the amount of stock that the plan could invest in. Stock was seen as too risky to invest in to guarantee a fixed amount when somebody retired. But in the early 1980s, with this ideology of, you know, markets are great and risk is good, the caps on the amount of stock public plans could invest were removed. So plans like CalPERS started buying up lots and lots and lots of stock. CalPERS got in the business since it had all this stock of pushing companies to give CalPERS and other investors more money from the company and more power. And why did they do this? Well, mostly it was an economic motivation. The more money they got on their stock investments, the more money they would have to pay for the retirement of baby boomers, and then the less money they'd need to get from the state to put into the pension fund. There were other factors to do with who were the people running CalPERS, but that's the story in a nutshell. What CalPERS did together with other large public pension plans was it developed a set of practices it wanted companies to adopt to prioritize shareholder interests. And I call these practices the shareholder cookbook. And the key recipe was paying CEOs with stock options. And the idea was that if the CEO focused on raising the company's share price, the CEO would get richer, and so would the shareholders. The word that was used was they would become aligned so that owners and executives would be on the same plane in sync. 
They also, CalPERS and others in the cookbook wanted to get independent people on the board of directors, people who were not friends of the CEO and who would make sure that all the CEO did ultimately at the end of the day was make sure that those share prices were going up. They tried to get firms to take down barriers to hostile takeovers. Mind you, the 1980s, the Gordo, Gordon Gecko era, there were a lot of hostile takeovers of companies going on. And CalPERS and other large public funds said, yeah, yippee, we're going we're gonna to join you in these hostile takeovers and get more money. We're going to you know, get in the game with you. And finally, they pushed for more cash, raise dividends, more share buybacks. And if we look at payouts from company to shareholders, which usually are both dividends and, and buying back their stock, those payouts start to climb beginning in the 1980s and just steadily go up. This stuff isn't great for workers. The cookbook isn't great for workers. You know, we know that hostile takeovers led to layoffs and wage cuts. And we know that giving more cash to shareholders hurts wages, hurts R&D, makes it harder to maintain job security. So one telling example happened in 1996. The corporate raider Kirk Kerkorian was going after General Motors, and he said to General Motors, basically, you're sitting on a lot of cash, give it to the shareholders. And CalPERS allied itself with Kirk Kerkorian, and in 1996, GM handed over to its shareholders $45 billion as dividends and share buybacks. It's a lot of money. That's in today's dollars. That same year, GM workers in the new contract took a 20% cut in their starting pay. Now, we always say correlation is not causation. We can't prove that the money that shareholders got came directly out of GM workers' pockets. But the statistical study I referred to earlier suggests that that is, in fact, what happened. Out of workers' pockets into shareholders' pockets, and those shareholders included pension plans. I'm one of those fortunate public employees who is a member of a union and has access to a pension. And of course, I want to see, you know, I would like to retire someday, assuming the planet still exists a few decades from now. And I would like to have a pension that that is that is able to, you know, support me in retirement. But I'm also a union member and, and everything that you're describing raises what sounds like a contradiction, right? A contradiction between interests of workers broadly and, and pension funds imperatives, right? To provide benefits to their beneficiaries in the immediate term. All of this is like not lost on the labor movement, of course, right? The labor movement has grappled with this in very sophisticated ways for a long time. And you just, you characterize this sort of beginning efforts and then developing sophistication within the labor movement of, of analyzing this contradiction as labor's financial term. So can you talk a little bit about, about first of all, just what was, I mean, I'm, I'm putting some words out here, but what, what in your mind was labor's financial term? And, and then some of your assessments of its efficacy over the last couple of decades? More or less, labor's financial turn started in the late 70s when there was a lot of deindustrialization going on, plant closures in the Midwest and the Northeast. And some folks in and around the labor movement said, wow, and also some politicians 
said, hey, we've got all this money in these pension funds. Can we somehow slow down deindustrialization by using workers' pension money to invest in, in these deindustrializing regions? And so that sort of started things cooking. And then in the 80s, there were some attempts to use pension funds and shareholder power of those pension funds to help in union organizing, like at uh, what was then called Beverly Nursing Homes, the SEIU tried to organize. But things really took off in the 90s when the labor movement said, you know, our numbers are going down. And if we don't put organizing front and center, we're going to disappear. And that's when there was development of more systematic strategies to harness the financial power that these pension funds had and use it to help workers because money is power. And so labor tried to leverage these pension funds into a source of power for the labor movement and for workers. One way this was done, so if you're a shareholder, you're allowed to make up uh, offer a resolution at a shareholder meeting and every all the shareholders get to vote on it, okay? Looks like they call it shareholder democracy. The problem is that companies don't actually have to pay attention. Even if 99% of the shareholders say we want X, company can say, oh yeah, thank you. Well, 99% of you want it, but screw you, we're not gonna listen. But if they don't listen, it can create problems. And so, a well-aimed shareholder proposal, generally said to be one that draws more than 40% of votes, has the potential to damage a company's reputation, embarrass the CEO, force the company to get together with whoever sponsored the proposal and say, okay, let's see what we can work out here. The unions, through their Taft-Hartley plans, the multi-employer plans, and also with help from friendly public pension funds in blue, blue places of the country began to use these shareholder proposals as part of organizing drives. So if they had a beef with a company, one of the things they could do was go to the shareholder meeting, file a proposal saying that, for example, the CEO's pay needed to be the way it was determined needed to be rejiggered because the company's share prices weren't very good. That would embarrass the CEO. And if it kept happening, CEO might say, okay, okay, you know, let's sit down and talk. And by the way, what about this organizing drive? Maybe we can find some common ground here and you don't keep filing those obnoxious shareholder proposals and embarrassing me in front of my shareholders. That's a vast oversimplification, but that's how it worked. And it started out slowly but by the 2000s, unions, union investors had replaced these big public pension funds as the main shareholder activists in the United States. It's pretty amazing. When you talk to you know, European trade union leaders, as I did back in the 2000s, they said, what are these Americans doing? You know, they're like so involved in filing shareholder proposals and you know, acting like capitalists. We don't understand it. But there was a strategy there. It was another arrow in labor's quiver to put pressure on companies. Labor's main issue was CEO pay during the 2000s, the period when it was really pushing this financial strategy. 
one of the big things it demanded was to give shareholders the right to vote on the CEO's pay package, which is pretty extraordinary. However, the vote was advisory. Nevertheless, at many, 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 many companies, companies that unions wanted to organize, companies where there were organizing drives, companies that were just ripping off their employees, it filed proposals saying, give our shareholders the right to vote on the CEO's pay. The other big issue for labor in, in the 2000s was something called proxy access. Again, give shareholders power in this case to nominate people to the board of directors. It was never publicly discussed that those nominees might be workers. Labor was very careful about that because business was saying, well, here are these union investors. They're demanding that shareholders have the right to nominate people to the board. Of course, they're going to nominate union members. And it's all a, you know, a, a Trojan horse to take over America and turn it into a communist republic. But this was what labor was pushing. And companies, in some instances, fought back. In other instances, it was coordinated with an organizing tribe. So that was one part of the financial turn. The other part of it was getting much more involved in financial regulation. For all of the 20th century, until this financial turn, labor was AWOL when it came to financial regulation. That began to change. If you could talk a little bit about the relationship between these, these union capital strategies that you've been discussing as an approach to, to building the labor movement and how, how that compares to older school bottom-up union organizing. And I guess a question sort of I would add, um, what about what has been the, the role of workers in, in some of what you're talking about? One complaint that's been made about this whole financial turn is that there was pretty much no rank and file involvement with it. It was the creature, the, the, the actors were st union staff people, lawyers, experts, MBAs, while it usually part of a larger effort, like a corporate campaign, there was still criticism made by organizers down on the ground that, hey, you know, you've got these MBAs getting involved and they don't know diddly squat about, you know, the daily lives of working people and they're not doing very much to help us get them involved in these financial strategies. And I think that that was one of the great weaknesses. By the way, some people have made the same criticism of SEIU's approach to corporate campaigns, that a lot of it was, you know, getting these neutrality agreements from employers involved a lot of top-level negotiations, Andy Stern sitting down with the CEO of a nursing home company. Well, there's no rank and file involvement there either. So both the financial turn, the shareholder activism, and in some cases, corporate campaigns, there was this problem of a lack of, of rank and file involvement. The one exception was trustees. The trustees of Taft-Hartley Fund and also some of the trustees of the public funds are union members, and they did get involved. They were trained to do what uh, their jobs, and so there was some involvement, but not much. What is the mechanism, and I guess you kind of talk about this a little bit earlier, but what is the mechanism by which the huge growth in shareholder wealth 
came out of workers' pay. Is there a direct conflict? And I guess here's another contradiction question. Is there a direct conflict between stock market, stock market growth and, and worker pay deterioration? Or is there a, more, or is there a relationship that's mediated and, and enabled by institutions? I think that to see a different model of how this might work in the context of a modern capitalist economy such as art, you'd have to go back to that middle period that I discussed, sort of the New Deal era broadly defined. And at that time, essentially what companies did was they put the, the three main recipients of corporate income, workers, shareholders, and executives, on a kind of formula. For workers, it was something like the Treaty of Detroit that the auto workers negotiated. You would get an annual improvement factor of 3%, which held their share steady. Shareholders would get dividends that also grew at a, a fixed rate. CEO pay was tied to or matched gains for workers. And, and so during that period, the relative shares of the three groups were not fixed, but a lot, a lot more stable than they are today where everything has been reallocated. What made that work fundamentally were two things. And one was the power of the labor movement to make sure that workers' share stayed steady or even increased. And the other was the power of, or I should say, a citizenry that was committed to fairness and an egalitarian distribution or relatively egalitarian distribution of income within corporations and within society more broadly through redistributive social programs. So to go back to that era would require a stronger labor movement and greater public support for uh, redistributive spending. We now hopefully, fingers crossed, move beyond the recent period of financialization from the 1970s to the present. What role do you see as for labor's pensions and, and financial strategies in trying to get past the current paradigm? And what lessons can we draw from the experience of the amalgamated and other labor financial institutions during the New Deal? I think in some ways, the financial turn and its embeddedness in pension funds, while it had uh, some tactical advantages for organizing, also created some blinders, if you will, to the downside of shareholding. And pension funds need stock, but if you start to think like a pension fund, then you're going to ignore issues like share buybacks, which are huge, and labor didn't have much to say about them until very recently. I think what, what uh, John Marshall is asking, in a way, I suppose, is, is there is there another way, is there another kind of financial system that could exist? And it, uh, yes, there have always been alternatives on the fringes, like cooperatives, like labor banks. And, it, and oddly enough, these ways, these alternative institutions for amalgamating capital and using it for productive purposes were much more prevalent in the early 20th century than they are today. Um, there were more cooperatives, there were labor banks, credit unions, things like that. How we can develop a larger non-corporate financial sector around 
these kinds of institutions, co-ops, labor banks, and the like, is a difficult question to answer. But I think it's very, it, it would be really, really helpful to working people if there were more such institutions around. I mean, you just take credit unions. Anybody who's dealt with a credit union knows that they offer much better terms. They're a whole lot nicer, much better terms for car loans and mortgages and returns on savings than you get from Chase. I think this is a great point to close on and, and note that the Postal Workers Union has been advocating for some time and organizing around the idea of postal banking as another kind of, as another potential feature of this more democratic financial landscape. And I would encourage listeners to check out some of their materials on that. So that seems to me like a really great, oh, Sandy, do you want to jump in on that point? Just real quick. I mean, one of my interests is Japan and Japan has for many, many years had a postal saving system. It exists in other countries. And it's real important, not surprisingly, financial industry in Japan and right-wingers have been going after it and trying to get rid of it, privatize it and the like. So it's a great idea, but they're going to come after it. Well, I think that note of conflict is, is a great one to close on as it's central to all of this stuff. So Sandy, thank you so much. I thought this is a really rich and, and informative discussion. And I know our audience members found it that way. So thank you, Sandy. And thank you, Samir, for taking the time to ask these great questions. I'm sorry, there's a lot in the book we never got to talk about, but you know how to solve that problem. <laughs> exactly. Issues like those raised in today's podcast are taken up in classroom discussions at the School of Labor and Urban Studies, where our preeminent faculty and engaged and diverse student body grapple with the most pressing challenges confronting organized labor and working class communities. For more information about the school, visit slu.cuny.edu. To learn more about the podcast and listen to other episodes, visit slu.cuny.edu slash podcast. And to subscribe to New Labor Forum or sign up for our free monthly newsletter, visit newlaborforum.cuny.edu.